Several questions have been uh, sent in uh, in response to my having put the word around that people were welcome to do that if they had questions and however before I respond to these questions I did want to mention a word of welcome to the Dhamma students of Margarita Huba in Uruguay who I understand might be listening to this Dhamma talk. So the first question, which is to do with the subject of hope, um, says, during these challenging times, there appears to be an upsurge of community spirit and a potential increase in spirituality. How can we avoid falling into naive hope? Personally, I think the subject of hopefulness is tremendously important. Uh, not just when there's a sense of crisis, but in our daily life to have a considered appreciation of what is skillful hopefulness. The question here alludes to a naive form of hopefulness and and there is that possibility and so it's wise to acknowledge we have this potential in our lives we can cultivate hopefulness and probably all of us at some stage or other have experienced hopelessness so from a practice perspective what does this mean In the past, I have uh, commented on this topic of hope and referred to it as a, a form of creative vigilance. And I came up with that term of phrase when I was contemplating it for myself. How does hope function? And first, the word vigilance because hope has that potential to generate alertness, aliveness. It can it can energize us. And if we feel hopeless, well then yes, there's a risk that we can fall into despair or to depression and feel disheartened. Mm-hmm. So hopefulness can be energizing 
in the way that vigilance can be energizing and and if we just simply acknowledge that and raise it up as a, as a positive condition and also the creativity side of it that hope is not something that happens to us rather I would suggest that hope is something we need to recognize we generate we're generating this positive mind state mm. we're the authors of it mm. and if we can own that, if we can acknowledge that, recognize we have this possibility then we're going to invest in it and if we don't well then the converse is true that maybe we do regrettably ignore the potential and fall into a heedless sense of hopelessness we can be overwhelmed by hopelessness when the conditions are as grave as they are right now however it's worth registering that even in such difficult circumstances as this we can we can focus on those things which lift us up like there is a lot of altruism around at the moment so yes human beings can behave in very beautiful ways as the questioner here is asking how can we how can we avoid falling into this hope being a naive quality of mind where in fact we're just feeding on uh, the good feelings that come with fantasizing about a, a new improved version of humanity in the future that is possible under the circumstances you see people behaving in exceptionally beautiful ways and and it could give rise to the idea that humanity is going to be transformed and maybe humanity is going to be transformed but maybe it's not if we can't accept that maybe it's not going to be transformed that maybe when this sad situation changes uh, people will revert back to self-referencing and lack of consideration for others and if we can't accommodate that thought well then I would suggest that it's because we're clinging to the idea that it's going to get better so there's a difference between clinging and holding and when it comes to hopefulness I think it can be useful to contemplate along these lines not just thinking we've got to be hopeful or or feeling upset because we're not feeling hopeful but also looking at the way we relate to hopefulness recently I got a, um, a phone call from the GP who told me that my blood test had come back indicating that I was uh, slightly deficient in vitamin D and that uh, I should make sure that I spent 30 minutes a day with my arms and my face in the sun and that's the first time I've heard a doctor telling me I should have more sun I'm used to doctors saying you've got to be careful sitting in the sun you can get skin cancer and well what's the point I mean it's not that sunshine is all bad or all dangerous it's how much how do we relate to it do we indulge in it or 
is there a considered, mindful, careful um, relationship with it? Likewise with hope. Is it a considered relationship that we have with hope? I heard it reported that one well-known Dhamma teacher was talking about hope as just a form of heedless desire. And that was what gave rise to my contemplating on it and coming up with this description of it as a form of creative vigilance. So it's a great pity if we can't appreciate the value, the nourishment of hope. Hope can, when you you look at goodness in others and feel how you feel, how do you feel when you see people being selfless? How do we feel when we see people being generous and kind? Like the image the Buddha suggested we dwell on when cultivating metta in the Karani Metta Sutta and talking about cultivating kindness. A mother with her only child. You see the selflessness of a mother with her only child registering that feeling, feeling that feeling, making that feeling conscious. Well, not just a mother with her only child, but any time we see somebody being kind or generous or, or forgiving, especially in the face of adversity, that warm-hearted, good feeling, this is the potential for human beings. Well, let's not miss it, let's not ignore it, but let's not indulge in it, like the sunshine. Too much of it can cause a big problem. Not enough of it can also cause difficulties. So with hopefulness, recognising what a nourishment it can be, at the same time including it in our contemplation. Are we feeding on hope in a clinging sort of way? Or can we accommodate the opposite view? Maybe this will be a real turning point for humanity. Certainly we've got ourselves into a pickle particularly the last few decades, the degree of human unawareness and the consequences is really genuinely frightening on many levels. How do we correct that? Well, NASA apparently is telling us that already in just this brief period of time the the shift in the quality of the air and the effect that it's having on the planet is positive. And and what about the... uh, cooperation between nations and between families and between individuals and uh, it may well be that this is a wake-up call and human beings collectively realize that we have the potential for living together in skillful mutually beneficial ways maybe you're familiar with that that simile the Buddha gave of the acrobat where mm, the older chap had a a bamboo pole and and the younger girl uh, standing on his shoulders and they they did some tricks and and they earned a living in the process of entertaining people and and in conversation the older person was trying to encourage the, the younger person to pay more attention to him and that he would pay more attention to her so that there was mutual benefit. What the Buddha had to say about that was that actually it was the other way around. The younger person, the girl, 
her opinion was that she'd be better if um, she paid closer attention to what she was doing and he paid closer attention to what he was doing and then they would generate mutual, mutual benefit. Mm. Now, it's not the case that we just think about ourselves and benefit ourselves. However, as the Buddha explained, in thinking about ourselves, we also benefit others in being careful and being vigilant and being mindful in how we live our lives generates benefit for ourselves and benefit for others. Well, in this considering the place of hopefulness, is it possible to take inspiration and encouragement from the generosity and kindness and thoughtfulness that's being demonstrated around us at the moment and consider that possibly uh, this is going to be a turning point for humanity? Yes, it is. We don't need to cling to the good feelings that come with that hopefulness. If we do cling to it, then we spoil it. So the next question says, how can our practice support us during this turbulent time? What quickly comes to my mind, thinking about practice, is the encouragement to include everything we do in practice. All our actions, the kamma that we perform, gaya kamma, waji kamma, mano kamma, bodily actions, actions of speech and actions of mind. And our practice, our training, hopefully has prepared us so that we have some degree of awareness of the effects of our actions. And one way of approaching this question is uh, looking at these three areas, particularly what comes to my mind is uh, speech. There's a word in Pali, piyawacha, which means lovely speech which the Buddha was encouraging. Is our speech, when we talk about the calamity that is taking place, is our speech lovely? Is it careful? Is the tendency to fall into sensationalizing, exaggerating? Is there any of that going on? Certainly in the media. There's plenty of that. So what we say and what we write, how we use our speech, matters. It's like, it's powerful. Yeah. It's powerful. And we sometimes uh, ignore the power of our speech. If you go into the workshop and you turn on the table saw, you see the power of this thing to rip through a piece of wood and you understand it can also cause you considerable physical harm. We understand the power of that table saw, so we're really careful. Well, it's skillful to similarly consider the power of our speech and 
both negatively and positively, the power to cause harm and, and make things much worse by speaking heedlessly, but also the, the power to generate real benefit. At the moment, a lot of people stuck indoors and perhaps people who are not used to living in such close quarters. And uh, it's even more important that we realise the potential benefit of peer watcher, lovely speech. That, like just checking in with each other. Yeah. Probably it's fair enough to say most people are struggling intensely at the moment and just to ask how somebody's doing, to ring up somebody, you know, somebody who you know is alone or somebody who's without support, don't have to go around and visit them, don't have to send them a care package, probably that's not even practical or doable at the moment. We can ring them up and we can speak in ways that are encouraging. And part of speaking is also listening. Listening to people. And sometimes listening to other people struggle, we can be tempted to try and fix them. Where's that coming from? It's often the case that we are motivated to get rid of suffering, not just our own, but even that of others, when somebody else is expressing their struggle to us, instead of feeling how we feel when we hear them and expanding awareness and warmth and sensitivity, we reject it. I was speaking last week about the consequence of rejecting pain. Things happen, We wish they didn't happen, but they do. And maybe we're not ready, maybe we're not able. Maybe it's an early stage of life and we hadn't learnt yet how to receive the pain of life. So we denied it. And denied pain doesn't go away. It just gets locked into the system. And we're like pushing it down into a, a room in the basement. And if we're not careful, we can build up a huge accumulation of denied pain and to the point where it's giving off a bad smell from time to time it leaks up through the floorboards and think what's that bad smell and when we're under pressure that's when it's more likely to leak out and, and well if it happens that we hear somebody else speaking of their pain their struggle it may not be what's actually happening to them here and now. Maybe it's because their old pain has been triggered. Their denied life, their denied pain has been triggered. What helps? Well, often what helps is just silently listening. Silently listening to them, receiving them. And as we generate the benefit for them by receiving them, we also benefit ourselves. Learning to receive others and learning to receive ourselves, they go together. Learning to receive suffering, an aspect of cultivating compassion. How to feel suffering without getting pulled into it, without rejecting it, without denying it. A compassionate attitude is not just telling somebody you feel sorry for them. That may not be 
particularly helpful at all, but learning how to listen, really listen and really feel the pain of another, if that's what they're sharing, can be a great gift, can be really helpful. And, and hopefully our practice has prepared us for this, the practice in mindfulness, the practice in what I was talking about last week, conscious composure, to contain our reactions instead of just following conditioning. And so kaya kama, waji kama, mano kama, activity of mind, the other level of kama, the other level of activity that our training prepares us in. And now the situation is such that for many people they've never had so much time on their own and they've also never had so much quietness. And I hear that for some people the silence is uh, really threatening. And so once again... I hope that our practices prepared us so that if we do start feeling threatened by something like silence, we don't fight it. We don't reject it. We turn towards it in a sensitive way, careful way, and ask, what's going on here? Why would we be afraid of silence? Just because there's no cars going by or, or uh, horns honking or... Mm. the streets are, are silent why would that be a problem mm. so using the opportunity I would suggest to making a project to train our minds even more mm. yes that we're under pressure however if something like fear of silence arises mm. can we meet it can we receive it and inquire into it. Maybe we have some skill and, and when the conditions are conducive and we you know, do a little concentration practice and arrive at a modicum of, of tranquility, which we enjoy, well, that can be refreshing and useful and there's a time for that. It can also just be a way of escaping, escaping the pain of life. And that's not necessarily going to resolve the issue. When we find ourselves feeling threatened by something like a loss of identity because we don't have the normal noise around us, the normal activity, it's an opportunity to stop well, finding a sense of identity in relationship to the activity that leaves us very vulnerable. If we feel threatened by silence, if we feel threatened by stillness, then it suggests that we've been relating to activity and sounds in unskillful ways. So there's a possibility, there's always a possibility that we can befriend silence we can befriend stillness. Instead of making it into an enemy and making it into a problem, we can listen to it. I can, if I remember correctly, I was in Sumatra many years ago in the early days of Chitta's monastery, spoke sometimes about learning how to listen to silence by intentionally thinking a thought. So we prepare ourselves, okay, 
if I tend to get caught up in, in the thoughts in my mind, which is the background noise most of the time for, for many people, is there a way of relativizing these thoughts? Is there a way of getting a perspective on these thoughts? And so Ajahn Sumedha was suggesting that we choose to think intentionally. So we prepare ourselves, and so we're listening inwards, uh, so we start to think a thought intentionally, so slowly speaking to ourselves inwardly and listening, listening, prepare ourselves for listening, that space, the silence before the thought starts, so, and then after it's finished, and so we're ready, so I am intentionally thinking this thought so as to get a perspective on thinking. And just in that simple exercise, you can say, thinking is not ultimate. For many people, the perception is that thinking is always there. Activity has to always be there or we lose our sense of self. With this exercise, we can start to loosen the grasp we had on the activity of thinking and come to appreciate the stillness within which thinking is taking place, the silence within which thinking is taking place. Maybe this is the beginning of a new relationship with silence and with stillness. Or we can modify the technique to however works for us. Also there's a possibility of what Nudgeon Smader also used to talk about, listening to the sound of silence. And the sound of silence he's referring to as a high-pitched ringing sound in the head. Some people hear it very easily, others not so readily. If you can't hear it, it doesn't matter, but if you can hear it, there's high frequency sound between the ears. It can be like a background sound that works as a frame of reference. So that's there, we can be listening to that so we don't lose our sense of self. There's a sound there, a very neutral sort of a sound. It's not tinnitus, it's another sound. I asked my audiologist whether this was tinnitus and was pretty sure this sound was not tinnitus. It's not an unpleasant sound at all, it's a very neutral sound. And if we listen to it, then it provides a frame of reference, similar to how paying attention to the sensation of the body sitting upright can give us a frame of reference. Mm. Or paying attention to the body breathing can give us a frame of reference. When we start to feel afraid because we feel threatened by too much silence or too little activity, that fear is in fact pain teaching us. We may not like it, However, the wise approach is to not resist it, not to reject it, not to judge it, not to judge ourselves, rather to pay that kind of attention that means we grow. Grow in confidence. We don't have to be dependent upon this activity or that activity.
become familiar with inactivity, befriend silence. So the question asks, uh, how can our practice support us during this turbulent time well, and all these aspects of body, speech and mind? We've already been given the skills and now's the time to apply them. Whether it's you know, learning to be careful in what we say, recognizing the power of speech, recognizing the power of wholesome action. It's quite possible when you're not allowed to be going outside and could just get lazy. Well, I'm aware of that tendency and so I've upgraded my Qigong routine, a set of Qigong exercises which I'd rather forgotten about. I have included in my exercise routine now and, and so I, I have a program. I don't just leave it up to, well, if I feel like doing it, I'm going to do it. If I don't feel like doing it, I won't do it. And no, I, I'm going to do it six days a week. I give myself one day off so as it doesn't get stale. Six days a week I'm going to do my exercise routine, looking after our body, realizing that we have, realizing there's a risk that if we don't set up structures we can just fall into habits of laziness. I was talking on the phone to, to an elderly friend in, who lives in Holland and she's alone, her husband died some years ago and she hasn't been able to see her children now for quite a while. And, and the restaurant that she eats at regularly has been closed down. And she said, well, I've got a long hallway in my house. I can walk up and down. And doing walking meditation. Similarly, a friend in Italy rang him the other day to see how he's doing. And I interrupted his walking meditation. His apartment's not so big, but it's big enough to do walking meditation. So engaging practices of physical activity mindfully, productively and then also of course the, the way we relate to our mental world mm. I would encourage using this opportunity to make a project and looking at our habits of distraction the way we've been distracting ourselves over the years with experience, with sights and sounds and smells and so on What's it like to sit still with nothing much happening? If it means the door in our basement where we've stored all those things that we don't want to know about blows open, well, we see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to receive that which hasn't been received thus far. So one more question, if um, we have time. Someone has asked for practical help and how they or their friends can deal with worry and fear over things like being able to pay the mortgage or the thought of having to stay inside for such a long time or not being able to see their children.
in a way it follows on from what I was just mentioning there about developing the mind I don't have any practical advice about financial security and however I do have practical advice with what we can do by working with our mind directly this intensely challenging situation what is it that we're worried about what is it that we're afraid of the answer is there in the question which says fear over the thought of having to stay inside for such a long time or not being able to see their children if we're honest about it and this is the barometer of spiritual practice is hopefully gradual increase honesty we get a perspective we get we can own up to the fact that it's thoughts about the future that are really troubling us if we ask ourselves right now can I handle this situation? Well, right now I am handling this situation. What I can't handle, or what I feel like I can't handle, is what I imagine is going to happen in the future, or what I imagine could happen in the future. And that takes quite a degree of honesty, because the consequence of acknowledging that is owning up to the fact that much of our lives we're not really all here if we have the skill to establish mindfulness attention in this moment with a, a sense of appreciation for the here and now now these words here and now they are words that they represent concepts here in itself is just a, a sound but what that sound represents is this experience we know we have been in other places in the past and we can imagine we will be in other places in the future and, and we can think about these things and it's useful that we can think about these things we can learn from what happened in the past and we can extrapolate and prepare ourselves for what might happen in the future however if we are not careful we lose touch with here and we get lost in what happened in the past we get lost in what we imagine might happen in the future other places other times other than here now so these two words here now are really helpful suggestions once again the only words representing a concept but these, these concepts are significant if we lose touch with this moment, this place then we can get dragged out into all sorts of really painful fantasies which give rise to very strong 
even overpowering sensations, the dread, the terror of what might happen. It's quite likely that for a lot of people there's no traffic noise outside and no planes flying over, no riots on the streets, still enough food in the larder, nothing really wrong at the moment. However, it can feel very wrong. Where does that feeling come from? It comes from thinking. So once again, if we can manage to guide ourselves towards getting interested in how we relate to silence, how we relate to stillness, not allowing ourselves to fall prey to the perception that silence or stillness are somehow inherently threatening. They can feel threatening. But sitting in the sun for hours can feel wonderful. We know it's not a good idea. Eating huge amounts of cheesecake at the time might feel great. However, it doesn't mean to say that it's good for us. So these feelings of fear and dread are understandable given the way that we've been relating to ideas we have about the past and the future. So mentioning this is not to hopefully uh, trigger feelings of self-judgment, rather to point at what practically, actually, we can do about it. We can actually investigate the thoughts we have about the future. Feet on the ground, breathing, here and now, thinking an intentional thought. I am terrified about the future. We can hear that thought. And just in that much, just even a minuscule shift in relationship to that thought can begin a process of letting go of thinking. I'm not talking about suddenly being liberated and suddenly enlightened, suddenly freed from all our struggles. Rather, we're talking about little by little growing in strength and competence. Just as the daily routine of exercise doesn't suddenly make us all healthy and fit, little by little, the health benefits accumulate. And likewise with these exercises, with listening inwardly, listening to silence, talking to silence, potentially befriending silence. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. Oh, well,